Hi, all. These are generally conversations between adults after the children have left the table. The language can be spicy, and the subjects can get saucy. So if you're ready, this is the Southern Fork. Unscripted kitchen chats, and also studio chats, with some of the most interesting voices in the culinary South. I'm Stephanie Burt, a food and beverage writer who travels with her fork to write for a variety of publications, from magazines you might have on your coffee table to the website you love to visit for your favorite recipes. And I'm inviting you to come behind the scenes with me to get to know the people who make this Southern culinary landscape so special. I'm always hungry for the next bite, thirsty for that next sip, and ready for the next conversation. Let's dig in. The Southern Fork is proud to say that once again, the presenting sponsor for Season 8 is Townsend Automotive in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. First off, thanks to so many of you listeners out there who not only decided to purchase a vehicle from this family-owned business in the last two years, but also shared with them that it was directly because of their support of this show. That's what community even in our virtual format, is all about. Second, Townsend Automotive, celebrating 49 years serving West Alabama, has been extending its reach so that you don't even have to be in the Tuscaloosa area to purchase a car from them. Nationwide vehicle delivery service is available for Southern Fork listeners, and it's something that makes buying just the right new or certified pre-owned vehicle even easier. Visit TownsendHonda.com for current inventory. Or, of course, if you're in West Alabama, stop in. Townsend Automotive always salutes local entrepreneurs, from restaurateurs to podcasters, and they welcome you to be part of a community that does the same. Many of us who are employed full-time might call what we do for fun away from work a hobby. But... For Dr. Howard Conyers, the research and practice of Barbecue Pitmaster and now Distiller is part of his life's mission, much more than a pastime when he's away from work. And what interesting work it is. At the age of 27, Howard earned a doctorate in mechanical engineering with a specialty in aeroelasticity from Duke University, making him one of less than 20 African Americans in the country to earn this degree. So, by day, Dr. Conyers is a rocket scientist at NASA's Stennis Space Center. Beyond his days of considering how to break the bonds of the Earth's atmosphere, he grounds himself back in the barbecue traditions of his youth. He cooked his first whole hog at 11, after all, and he aims to shine a light on the traditions of black barbecue cooks and the practice of whole animal barbecue in the South. He's a mentor for Kingsford's Preserve the Pit program, celebrating black barbecue culture. 
He was the host of a 2019 PBS digital series called Nourish. He's been featured in the New York Times, Bon Appetit, and Southern Living. And now he's taking his passion for storytelling and real-life practice into the world of moonshine with his new farm distillery, Backyard Distillery, in Manning, South Carolina. Welcome to the Southern Fork, Dr. Conyers. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have you. I think you figured that out at Seaweed when I basically outed you at an event, right? <laughs> no, nah, I just, I guess we want to hear what I have to say sometimes. It's just a, always a surprise, but I'm always elated when people respect my work. Well, I followed your work for years from the PBS Nourish to to now, and you're really shifting focus. But before we even get to that, I I want to talk about the idea that you know, you are a rocket scientist. And so you could just be a rocket scientist. You could just do that and shop at Costco on the weekends and vacation a couple times a year. And you've decided to do this other thing that is that is a passion of yours. And that is really documentation. That is appreciation. As I would look at it, folklore. You are documenting your culture from within it. And Zora Neale Hurston was great leader in this field, and I know you highly respect her. Well, to first put me in a conversation with somebody like a Zora Neale Hurston is humbling. I don't consider myself a Fort Lawrence per se, but I've, I feel like I'm a voice of the people who helped me get to all these other titles and accolades. Without them, there will be no Howard Conyers. And so the things that people want to know about America, you won't hardly hear those things if I don't share them. So growing up in a culture that is significantly rich, particularly a lot of people know from barbecue, and I think you know me from barbecue, whole hog barbecue in particular, my perspective on barbecue is not like many people in this country would be exposed to. Barbecue as I know it was not in a barbecue, it's not in a restaurant. So... When you think about barbecue outside of a restaurant, to keep it going in the form that it was preserved in my community in Paxville, South Carolina, it has to be a labor of love and it has to be in the culture. It has to be in the DNA of people. Just think about most Americans knowing that barbecue only through restaurants. Barbecue to me was an event, family gathering, celebration. It was some kind of coming together where you bring in a lot of your family and friends together or your church member, your community together. And that's what kept it going. Mm -hmm. And so what was the impetus for you to start talking about that specifically? Was there some moment where you were like, we're losing this, we're figuring this out? I started talking about it because I saw an article in Fox News that didn't have any African-American pitmasters. And every pitmaster, well, I didn't know people as pitmasters. I know them as barbecue cooks or barbecuers. And they were cooking a whole hog variety. But none of, in that list, they didn't have anybody who looked like the people in my community. And so that moment is what triggered. But then I started um, doing research. And when I in the moment I started doing research, because in some of the rebuttals to that particular article, I saw pits in the ground and... um I remember my father always said he learned cooking in the ground. And when I when I look at the picture and I look at how I cook barbecue today, the pig butterflied out look identical. And so 
like, and I just start going down this wild goose chase. I said, like, how far back did this thing really go? Mm-hmm. So you're doing a, a really culinary etymology. Forensics, really. I, I, I guess you would say that because a lot of what you know about barbecue is not documented in any books. Mm-hmm. And you have to piece together a story because the, the first person account of barbecue is not by the people who's doing the work, especially when you go back hundreds of years. So everything you got is a third portion account. It's a bit here, a piece there. You may have to read an author here in the United States, but you also may have to read an author, author in the UK. And then you have to go back and trace it and use various sources, not just a history book of barbecue. You have to use, understand capitalism. You have to understand how America formed. Because when you start looking at archival pictures and you see pictures in North Carolina and go all the way to Texas, you see some of the same style pits. Mm-hmm. And what? How did that knowledge change before all these technological uh, technological platforms? And so you've been on this personal journey, but it's turned into somewhat of a professional journey of sharing and documenting. What have you really learned about barbecue in America? Can you distill it in a short space for us? To understand barbecue in America is to understand America's history. You understand the good, bad, and ugly of America in one dish. And it's the only dish that I think you can really say that you understand America. Because barbecue, as I know it, and as I like to think of it, People may say cooking the meat is barbecue, but cooking the meat is not necessarily barbecue. When you say barbecue, that particular tradition was invented on these soils through plantation culture. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a little bit about that invention on plantation soil? When I say barbecue is invented on plantation, particularly during slavery, you needed something to gather people together. And during the earliest forms of America, they they needed political rallies. And barbecue is the only dish that you could feed large numbers of people. You don't have in the 16, 1700s, you don't have refrigeration. Mm-hmm. You have live animals that can go to a certain location. They could be killed by enslaved labor, butchered, prepared for the barbecue pit. You could have kids running around collecting firewood for the barbecue pit. You could have another set of people digging the pit. Uh, you could have the men or women. Uh, generally, the men was cooking the barbecue, the women was preparing the sides. So it took it took a whole community to make it happen. But you could feed a thousand people. In some of the literature, they talk about they fed several thousand people. And the barbecue is the only dish you could do that. You can't do that with fried chicken. You can't do it with gumbo. And so you need those long trenches. And you look at some of the earliest plant, uh, earliest presidents, whether it was George Washington or Thomas Jefferson. If you look at their archaeological digs, you'll see pits in the ground from when they did barbecues, but they weren't doing the cooking. And also, we still associate politics and barbecue together in the South today. Yeah, but you don't talk about politics, barbecue, or religion in the South. But you do. Everybody (laughs) does, right? (laughs) Well, I grew up in North Carolina, and I grew up really like three minutes away from Mallard Creek Presbyterian Church. And that had one of the biggest North Carolina barbecues visited by national politicians during a presidential cycle. Really? Yeah. Getting the votes. Yeah, getting the votes. And so for me, you know, that we've got food, religion, and politics mixed up 
in a parking lot in the 1980s, three minutes from my house. So we're seeing the residual things of this George Washington, Thomas Jefferson archaeological dig, right? No, you you seeing if you had if you're saying presidential candidates was traveling around the country, traveling to this particular event, and Barbie, wow, yeah, I'm glad that you know it. I'm surprised it's still going on, but it's encouraging because you know the important to that mean that say how important barbecue is. And barbecue is important. And we're speaking specifically about whole hog barbecue. And we've seen a resurgence, right, of whole hog? Yeah. So, how do you feel about that? So, what I'm going to say about barbecue, though, whole hog is the last vestige of Southern barbecue. Southern barbecue was not just whole hog, Southern barbecue involved whole animal carcasses, whether it was a cow carcass, lamb, sheep, goat. What they call a shoat, which is a baby pig, uh, uh, not a baby pig, but a little pig, a hog, um, turkeys, chicken. In some literature, you see like raccoons and possum, but I don't really put those in my barbecue equation. But they was whatever whole animals. So to see the resurgence of whole hog barbecue, I'm glad to see it, but I'm disheartened to see it when the people who contributed significantly to barbecue, they're not in the equation. And you're specifically talking, talking about, about black people, black people. Mm-hmm. who families enslaved on these soils. But we have um, a tradition of black pick masters that have been celebrated in American food now. Ed Mitchell, um, Brian Furman, Rodney Scott, but and then um, Helen. You got yeah, you got Ellen. Yeah, you got those four. Those names are the four big names, right? On in the South, um, Grady. Mr. Grady, uh, Stephen, Stephen and Jerry Grady in Dudley, North Carolina. Those are pretty much the names that have been celebrated in the South. Mm-hmm. I mean, you got some other folks that in the South, in the, on the West Coast, like, uh, Kevin Bledsoe or Matt Horn, but in the South with the old style of cooking with direct heat cooking. I mean, particularly you don't have like three or four names and Rodney is probably the biggest name out of all those individuals. Mm-hmm. But, um, and, and Ed, Ed, Ed Mitchell, he would have been big, but he was ahead of his time. Mm-hmm. And I have a lot of respect for Ed Mitchell out of North Carolina. He had a he had a rough, not a rough story. It just through Ed Mitchell's story, I say it like this: You see the good and bad about America when somebody's trying to better themselves, but you see racism comes out and rears rears its ugly head, mm-hmm. and especially in a place like Wilson, North Carolina. Eastern North Carolina for Southern Fork listeners that aren't familiar with the geography of North Carolina, like Howard and I are. <laughs> I should have said Eastern North Carolina, my bad. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Well, I'd like to, for a second, before we move on to Moonshine, which is just as interesting, Southern Fork listeners, um, I'd like to talk about the actual taste and work of cooking it in the ground versus the pit, the built pit. If you're familiar with barbecue restaurants around the country, it's really either a a separate building, concrete block building, or it will be um, a wooden or other kind of building with concrete block um, kind of squares, elevated squares. And then the grates are over it, right? And then you have a butterflied whole hog that lays on top of it, and it's kind of licked by the flames. By the coals underneath. Yeah, and by the coals. That is a very important point that Howard brings out. You have to get the wood 
to a coal stage, not a burning it stage. Correct. You have a feeder fire to the side that burns the oak wood or hickory wood or a combination of above into little small hot embers. And so it's that offset kind of cooking. Uh, it's direct heat cooking, but you're not using fire underneath it. You're using the embers. To, and that that is something that was developed during trial and error, I believe, during the evolution of the early stages of cooking barbecue. Because you can't, a lot of places you see people cooking with live fire underneath the animal. And they'll do like a rotisserie. But if you were cooking 10 animals in a row, could you really control the heat as precisely as with those embers? Right. And also, if you are cooking a modern pig... Versus um, an old. That's, that's a whole nother conversation. That's a whole nother conversation, but the fat content is different. Fat content is different, but the flavor, how the animal is raised is different. And that makes a big difference. I think that probably, that might make more difference than the flavor of the animal coming out of the ground versus an above ground pit. Because when they was cooking in the ground pit, most of those animals were raised on a farm where they could walk, where the pigs could walk around and be happy. Like Marvin Ross. Like Marvin Ross pigs. Yeah. Who I had on last year. Great, great. Um, farmer as well as a barbecue pit master. Yes. Right. And, um, becoming more and more involved in that world. I know you cooked a whole cow once, right? I cooked a whole cow. And how did you get it on the pit? That was a hard part. It took a team of us to lift that cow into the pit. And it was kind of dangerous how we did it, but, um, glad the cow was in halves. It was the whole cow, but it was in a half. And I'm glad the slaughterhouse cut it in half because we wouldn't be able to pick it up and we basically picked took two tables to pick up the cow half to put it up and raise it up in the height and then kind of sling it into the pit um that was a journey for one it was a journey to cook a whole cow but the other journey was just the engineering behind the pit and my father built in the pit that was something that um it was a labor of love but it also shows how good people are, particularly black people are working with their hands, but mm-hmm. working with their minds at the same time. Cause you had to do, I did a lot of the, it took me six months of time, six months of time to design that pit before we even built it. And you're an engineer. I'm an engineer. <laughs> not like me. No one wants me to build a pit. I mean, I'm not an engineer mind. Yeah. And so. I was trying to make it easy because like you say, like it's heavy to lift that animal up mm-hmm. there. But once you start cooking it, you couldn't be touching the animal with your hands. Right. And you so can't flip it you because can't flip it like that. if it if it shifts or whatever, I mean, you could get seriously burned yeah, and, and also saw, ruin food. Yeah, it could ruin food. But I actually saw a bad accident. Well, on Instagram, I saw a bad accident of somebody designed a cow pit, kind of modeled after ours, and it actually caught on fire. Oh no! Yes. Yeah. So this is the idea of whole animal cooking. And whole, um, like really that idea of no waste cooking. No waste. It's all, it's all, all in. That animal gave us life, so you should cook that whole animal. And you, you have a dad that knows how to build a pit. My father went welding for like 40 something years, so I think he should know how to work <laughs> with metals. Um, nah, he's actually a master craftsman at actually welding and working in metals. Mm-hmm. What has, sustained you what has fed you about your barbecue research it just shows the ingenuity of a people but also shows like no matter how bad it was in america we still our ancestors created something special that people still enjoy to this day mm-hmm. and they will probably enjoy, enjoy tomorrow too ingenuity in the next creativity using what you got 
That's creativity in its purest form, right? Purest form. But now we're on to moonshine. So that has caught your creative imagination now. Talk a little bit about the shift from Dr. Conyers' barbecue guy to Dr. Conyers' moonshine distiller. What people fail to realize, some of the best pitmasters were distillers. They fail to realize that in the South. Just as long as I know about barbecue as a child growing up cooking barbecue, I've been around in proximity. I won't say I was making liquor as a child, but I was in proximity to that rich tradition in my community. Really deep. And is corn? Corn. What about your spirits? Are they corn-based? They're corn-based. Mm-hmm. And where do you source that corn? We grow the most of it. Um, except for years as, as a small black farmer, sometimes you don't better get all the um, ingredients that you want. Like one year we couldn't get lime because we waited too late in the year and the lime trucks would kind of stop delivering. But generally we grow our own corn to ferment, to make an alcohol. And sometimes we buy some in our community, but generally we, we, we like to have our own base. Mm-hmm. I, I spoke a couple weeks ago about cultural totems with Shane Mitchell. And I feel like barbecue is a cultural totem. It's more than a food, right? It's a cultural totem. And I would say that moonshine is as well. It's, right? it's just a significant, I think what I want your listeners to really appreciate barbecue and moonshine went hand in hand. Well, barbecue was created on its own, but once emancipation occurred, barbecue and moonshine culture went hand in hand in the black community. And is that because of revenue? You need the revenue. Farming was not paying enough. Mm -hmm. And so people would call it bootlegging, moonshining. Um, That was value adding before. And they knew they could make us a product. Value added products. Value added products. (laughs) It was. They took what they had, value added products, and um, it helped them survive. It It helped people survive. And I take a lot of pride in it because I also know it helps send a lot of people to college. There's this thing. I mean, I've I've been around the other side of bootlegging NASCAR and the moonshine and the Appalachian stuff, and I've written about it. Um, and there's this idea of it lessening because of legitimization or legalization. What do you feel about that? I think... The takeaway, it has, it should have a highly guarded place and not because I'm doing it. The legitimacy would come because you got to understand America want one thing, the dollar. And so if you don't want to pay taxes in the United States of America, that's a whole nother conversation. The actual process and the spirits that you make should be, if you, if that's what it is, you should pay taxes on it. And it just, a lot of times, once you start paying taxes, it becomes very cost prohibitive to get into the game. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's a big sacrifice, a big investment to become a distiller in the United States of America. It is so expensive. Well, if you're doing a white lightning, you're not aging the spirit in the same way. But if you're doing any kind of aging or any kind of manipulation at all beyond just distilling, you have to sit on it. Yep. You have a product that you've invested a lot of money that you can't get money out of. Yes, that, but I'm going to say what the moonshiners did or bootleggers did that these large distilleries didn't do, they use pot stills. These large distilleries use column stills. You could push out a lot of product, but are you getting that same quality product as a pot still that you get in batches? So what do you like about the pot still? There's an art to making 
alcohol in a pot still. Mm-hmm. You have to do your blending and cutting right. Um, also, if you're using very simple pot stills with direct heat, just like barbecue, you have to watch the fire. It's no automated controls. Mm-hmm. If you don't take, if you don't take a really artisan approach. And I would say we are taking a very artisan approach. Do you have any flavors? Cause I know flavors are really big in the South, like the apple. Apple is a big thing. It's a big thing. We're not doing it yet. And it's not because I'm not sure, but it's like, I don't know if I want to pay taxes on water. Mm-hmm. I pay taxes on alcohol, but I'm not sure if I want to pay taxes on mm-hmm. just street water. Most of the flavors, flavored alcohol, that like apple pies or blueberry or watermelon, they are lower proof spirits. They like are. And they have to be cut with flavor, flavor agents. And that can be natural or a propylene glycol kind of flavoring agent. And I'm going to guess that's not your type of situation. That's not my type of situation. (laughs) So you're actually adding volume, but you're, you know, you're also going to be paying taxes on You're going to be paying extra taxes on it. I I don't mind paying the taxes, but I don't know if I want to pay taxes on water. I pay the taxes on alcohol all day, every day, Mm -hmm. every month, like clockwork. You know, Howard, I haven't really thought about the idea of a live fire under a pot still and a live fire under a whole hog. Yeah, it's very controlled. Very controlled. And both are volatile. They they, they are because a, a hog, if it starts dropping grease really fast, it's combustible. If you make an alcohol and your alcohol vapors get too high in the room, it's combustible. So you have to have a really fine understanding of fire and the appreciation and respect for what it is. Does that appeal to your engineering side? That... Um, Hands-on kind of thing. I'm amazed what you can do with fire. Mm-hmm. And so, like, when I think about what I do for a living, when you send rockets into space, that's also a controlled reaction, too. A co- controlled combustion, but it's very volatile, too. And so, fire is one of those things, if you could control it and harness it, you could get a lot out of it. But you only, but you have to still treat it with a lot of respect. Well, you've definitely run the gamut. And... I'm happy to be sitting in the PD of South Carolina with you today um, and back in your, your home turf before you go back to New Orleans. Yeah, the PD is special. Um, family is deep in the PD and um, living in New Orleans is special too. I wish more people would know more about the PD, but uh, the PD is where I'm from. You're You're doing this new venture. You've gone through this entire creative discovery. Really, that was a rabbit hole for you. And then you shared it with us. But it was a rabbit hole for yeah, you it first. For me, also shared it with people back in my community so they could know how some of the elders I learned from so they could know how significant this tradition tradition they was a part of. Because nobody really told them how deep it went back. They maybe thought it went back 100 years, but they didn't really know. They didn't really think about it. They, they were just they were involved just in the tradition. Right. So then you are explaining to them their space. Their so space. what is making you hungry? Where are you interested in now? I think figuring out how and when I'm going to interact and get back into media again. But I, when I get back into media the next time, besides doing these very special podcast. I don't do a lot of podcasts anymore, interviews. And I appreciate that. But I, you're welcome. But I want to be able to tell stories again, but I want to make sure on my own terms. Mm-hmm. So you felt like the storytelling was taken away from you? I feel like media has a lot of gatekeeping. 
When you start asking people for resources, there's a lot of gatekeeping. And until that gatekeeping stops, you won't see the true richness of this country. This country is very rich. It's my job. It's your job. My job is to show the richness of this country and the diversity of this region I mean, as I, well. And I think that's what, that's what I'm thinking the media is lacking. I mean, like women, race, religion, gender. I mean, it's just all over the place where diversity could show itself. But if media is gatekeep, you can't really get nothing so much out. But I also think we're missing nuance. We are. That's what you need diversity for. What is one aspect of the work that you do that meshes like a puzzle piece with an aspect of your natural personality, which seems investigative, if you ask me? I always love history, even though I'm a math and science person. I always love history. Mm-hmm. But where I learned history at the most, I didn't learn it in school. I actually learned it sitting around barbecue pits. Watching or hearing? Listening. Listening. People thought I was, my father took me outside to learn how to barbecue, but that was the farthest from the truth. Like the barbecue was the activity, but the classroom was the thing going on that intrigued me. Yeah. Yeah. It was a fire hose information. Like y'all, people don't know how much information was passed. Well, if that isn't Nora Zora Neale Hurston <laughs> at her local general store, then what is? Come on. Do you remember that story about her? No, going I, and yeah anyway i guess i would look it up but no it was a fire hose information she would say i would just go and sit but she wanted to just hear it so what is one thing keeping you up at night right now i was trying to figure out how to make this farm distillery work this farm thing is important like sort of like a farmer but getting back to my roots in all of it i'm getting back to who i am as a person i, mm-hmm. I grew up on a farm my family been farming for generations since since slavery continuously, and so figure out how to make it work in a modern world. Yeah, everybody I knew farm, everybody who I knew farm also had other jobs. So, <laughs> and your job just happens to be rocket science, but yeah, yeah. So it's kind of weird. So, do you feel like you're getting closer to yourself? I know that's a very intimate question, but do you feel like this work has brought you closer to who you feel you are at the core? Yeah, it, it, the work has gotten me back to where I know more about myself. I mean, yeah, living in New Orleans, I there's not so much you can see. I mean, New Orleans is very special. New Orleans, I'm not taking anything away from New Orleans, but to get back to my core, there's something about farming. Farming and engineering go hand in hand. You can't be a good farmer without being being an engineer. And if you if you're gonna be a great farmer, you also got to be innovative, because you may have limited resources, but you got to solve really complicated problems in real time, really quickly. Mm-hmm. As the season shifts, as the season shifts, or even even as a certain task you need to get done, and you might have one or two people, or you might have to do it by yourself. Right. Every farmer I've ever known has like weird pieces of equipment just thrown in certain areas because they never want to get rid of it. You never know. When you you never know when you might need it. And you're just like, what is that? And they're like, I don't know, but I need, I might need it. And they do know. They just don't want to talk to me about it. I think, no, you don't know. Sometimes you don't know, but it'd be that as soon as you throw it away, that next day or six weeks from now, eight months from now, you need that one thing. Yeah. All right. I am so honored that you allowed me to speak with you on the mic today. And there is something that I reserve just for my Southern Fort guests. And this is 
that final question. And that is what I like to call my magic picnic basket question. So um, instead of a death row meal, I would love to build a picnic basket for you that brings you life. So in this virtual kind of world, I can time travel. I can go back and ask anybody to cons- to make one more bite of something you would love to try. I can source for you and I can cook a little bit, but I'm not good at whole hog. You don't want to eat that. <laughs> <laughs> so I would love to bring you some of your favorite things in this picnic basket. They don't have to go together. They don't have to be a real picnic. Just some things that really bring you life when I say those words that pop into your head. I think I would love to have my grandmother tea cakes again. Um, kind of ginger, cane syrup, buttery type, soft pillowy cookies. Um, there was this lady, E.S. Richburg jelly cake. I would love to hear, have had some of the great barbecue cooks whole hog in my community. Like we, there were some people that we laugh about this word called goat, greatest of all time. But during the, when I was growing up, certain names kept coming up over and over again. So I'd be curious to know how their barbecue tastes just because everybody talked about it in my community. Um, you were too young and you didn't I, get to taste it. Oh, they was already deceased and already stopped cooking by that time. Um, my mom's still here with me. I mean, I, I love my mom, um, biscuits and canned, canned peaches. We don't really can as many peaches as we used to. Some I wish we could get back to, but a number of peach orchards in the area are not as plentiful. I think those are kind of the most significant things I would probably think about, honestly. Sweet tea. I always like a good glass of sweet tea. Blackberry cobbler with homemade crust or sweet potato pie. Cause my family were growing sweet potatoes for a long time, so. Mm-hmm. But that's more of a fall winter thing. What the sweet potato pie? Uh-huh. It is, but the blackberry cobbler. You didn't say the time of the year, so. That's true. But that's you also true. could store sweet potatoes in a bank. That and what true. I mean by a bank is a ground covered structure, not a structure, but it's basically like a clay, a dirt structure with like pine straw to store sweet potatoes for an extended period of time. Yeah. Blackberries that late August flavor. Late August? Mid August? I thought it was like June, July. Oh, well, it shows I'm a North Carolina girl. Yeah, that may be a North Carolina (laughs) thing. It's South Carolina, like June, July. You're right. You're right. Well, if people want to learn more about Dr. Howard Conyers, you can go to thesouthernfork.com. I'm going to have links there to his website. Also, you can see the face behind the voice. If you like what you hear, there are more than 315 episodes in the archives. There are some other barbecue pitmasters in there. There are some other scholars in there. There's a lot to really dig in and get a second helping from. I sincerely appreciate the opportunity to do this work. And um, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. In the middle of the PD. In the middle of the PD. First time I did a podcast in the middle of the PD. There you go. It's first time for everything. (laughs) Hello and welcome to Talking With My Mouthful. I'm going to briefly move from one food tradition, barbecue, to another food tradition, pimento cheese. This week, this weekend specifically, it's the Masters. And the Masters 
golf tournament in Augusta, Georgia, is really known for um, heralding spring in the South for some people who really love sports. And Augusta National, the golf course, is known for its pimento cheese sandwiches. I have seen so many recipes online this week for pimento cheese trying to connect to this tradition. And so I'm going to add in on this. I actually have a pimento cheese recipe on simplyrecipes.com. I was asked by this publication last year to submit my pimento cheese. And so I'm going to throw down and say mine is the best. Of course, um, I am going to not try to challenge your granny or anything like that. But mine is very simple. I'm going to put a link to this um, in the show notes on Howard Conyers episode page. There's also going to be a link there to his PBS Nourish series. So you can click on that digital content if you'd like to learn a little bit more about the work that he did during that series in 2019. But if you are feeling like you want to make some pimento cheese this weekend, click there, find that recipe, or just Google pimento cheese simply recipes and look for my recipe online. Um, and let me know what you think. I'm in the mood to make some myself. Um, and I don't need a golf tournament as an excuse. So Thanks a lot for listening. I hope that you have a wonderful weekend and I'll be right here next week. You've been listening to the Southern Fork. I can't wait to bring you more culinary conversations, but in the meantime, I have one question. Are you going to eat all that? <laughs> <laughs>